Hello, this is the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day, and this is a podcast about some of the striking ideas which are in the air and up for discussion at the 8th Global Peter Drucker Forum. It takes place in Vienna every year in November. This year's forum theme, the Entrepreneurial Society. And with me is Kurt Carlson, who for a long time was director of uh, something called SRI. used to be the Stanford Research Institute a long, long time ago, and was a place which sort of made an engine out of innovation in Silicon Valley, right in the heart of a place that was innovating all over the place. That's true. It was a place that did great research, but the goal was really to make an impact on society. And if you're going to do that, you have to turn technology, new ideas, new knowledge into things that people in society want. Yeah, but you systematized that, didn't you? When you showed me round uh, three or four years ago, then... Uh, a lot of very clever people were systematically working on new things, things that were going to disrupt or change or benefit. Yes, indeed. Well, we think of innovation as a discipline. It's something that can be learned, improved, and once people have the skills to be able to do that, it's amazing what, they're, what they can accomplish. But like any other discipline, you need to study it and you need to apply it. But in big companies, most innovation fails. 80% of it the studies say. I don't know whether you can actually put a figure on it, but that's the sort of feeling, isn't it, that most innovation attempts don't work? Well, that's what we've seen around the world. Actually, 80% is what the number we use, too, and generally it's because they have no innovation process, and the, the proof of that is go up to a middle-level manager and ask them to describe their innovation system. And the chance that you can find someone who can is extraordinarily low, and if they can't, there is none. Now, you loved showing people around SRI when you were the head of it, but also now that you've left SRI, you're involved in encouraging and mentoring entrepreneurship all over the world. Yes. Obviously, innovation is what drives prosperity, jobs, growth, all the things that we want in society, resources so we can provide for social responsibility. And we're not doing a good job. We're not creating the jobs we need or the prosperity we need. So yes, I've dedicated my life now to two things, improving innovative performance by working with companies and startups and governments with the National Science Foundation and the U.S., Singaporean government, and also helping develop educational programs that can teach people these skills so it's not some episodic, mysterious thing that people think is full of risk and all kinds of other myths that are just not true. In a few minutes, it's difficult to entirely demystify, but how do you go about that? What are the ways you convince people that it's not an airy-fairy stab in the dark? Well, it, it's a series of things. The, the main thing is that innovation is about learning fast. People often say, it's about failing fast. It's not about failing fast. Nobody wants to fail fast. What you want to do is learn fast. So if you think about what are the things that allow you to learn fast? Well, you have to have common definitions. You have to know the right kind of processes. You need to involve the right people. There's nothing mysterious about it. And that framing, that framing of about it learning fast, changes everything about the way you think about it. And when you put in place a number of the things that encourage learning, all of a sudden it ceases to be this mysterious thing that only a few people can do, and then it becomes a systematic process that many people can do, almost everybody can do. Yes, 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 but you have to identify an outcome, a purpose, yes. don't you? Before you start learning fast or even failing fast, you need some objective. How do you yes. get an objective in innovation? Your starting point can come from all kinds of different perspectives. You can actually wake up in a shower and all of a sudden realize, you know, maybe there's something here. Sometimes you get it by reading magazines. Sometimes you get it from talking to your colleagues. There's lots of ways to get 
get started. But as soon as you start, you have to come up with a working hypothesis for how you would solve the problem. And that working hypothesis is just that. It's a guess. And then you have to actually go through a learning process to prove whether the idea is true or not. At SRI, what we did, so it wasn't so episodic, is we intensely studied the marketplace. We studied technology. Where is it going? What do people need? It was another part of the learning. You just have to be out there. You have to talk to people. You have to go to meetings. You have to do all those things. But that was sharpened at SRI by the fact that you were there to innovate. That was the whole purpose of the Institute, wasn't it? For companies, it's a part of what we do, and we have a great ongoing machine that is making the goods and services that is what our heartland business is and the innovation thing is kind of attached to that and may be taken seriously or less seriously by the people who are doing the work that earns the money. Yes. Well it's true at SRI the only thing we did was innovation and we had to create major innovations because otherwise in today's world it's global and competitive and no one would want them so we were that's true we were forced to do this. Things like what? What sort of innovations came out of SRI in your, on your watch? Well, things like high-definition television, which became the U.S. standard for um, first the world and then pretty much all around the world. Siri on the iPhone, that was a company we formed that was bought, it was actually bought directly by Steve Jobs. Many things, but it was a systematic process. Okay, that was systematic there. An ordinary company not devoted to innovation, how do they integrate it with everything else they do? Well, first off, if you're not innovating today, you're taking a huge risk. The rate of failure of big companies now is down, their lifetime is down to about 15 years. So you become a Nokia, for example, and in seven years you go from number one to out of business. Kodak, 10 years from number one to out of business. This is happening all over the world, and it's not because they don't have great people. It's not that they don't have great technology. They have great opportunities. They have everything except they don't have a way to innovate fast enough. But Kodak, of course, was successful, really successful for 100 years. Just press the button and we do the rest was the slogan that defined what they did for decade after decade. Nokia brilliantly managed the transition from growing trees to becoming a mobile, the definitive mobile phone company for a little while. Then something happened. The innovation stopped. What happened is the world changed, and so uh, Kodak had a monopoly, basically, for most of that time. But they were jolly good at making film, and they refined that and refined that, and it was yeah. a capital-intensive process, so hardly anybody else in the world got into that thing. Well, Nokia did do innovation in a remarkable way in faraway Finland, didn't they? Well, both of them got tripped up, not because they didn't have great people or technology. They got tripped up because the market changed, and they could never figure out what we call a business model to make money and be successful. Kodak had digital technology. That was not the problem. They invented the digital camera. They did. They did it. They had it. They had it for years. But they had no way to innovate in the marketplace to get it out there at a price and a way that the customer wanted. Nokia, same thing. They had all. They had every advantage that Apple had, except one thing. You might say it was Steve Jobs, but he had a process for innovation. And what he did is he changed the game. So instead of it being a phone, it became a personal computer that did all kinds of things. I was visited by a senior vice president for phones from Nokia one time, and I showed him my iPhone. And he said, that's not a good phone. I said, well, maybe it's something else. 
He said, no, they don't know how to make phones. And here I am, the CEO of SRI International in the center of Silicon Valley. And if I were him, I would think, why do you like this phone? I mean, you live in this world, right? But he never asked me that. He just told me it was a bad phone. And I remember walking out of that meeting and thinking, it's all over. You had a premonition. I did. Or they delivered unto you a premonition. He should have been, in today's world, that moves so fast. If you're not curious about what's going on and why people either like or don't like your product, you have a serious problem. Another thing about phones, Apple 20 years ago went on a dreadful race because it, it killed people, actually. People committed suicide over it, or one person certainly did. They built the Newton, didn't they? The, yes. the tablet computer. Yes. 20 years ahead of it all, yes. 15 years yes. ahead of its time, wasn't it? But that was the dream that was being pursued then. The timing was wrong. The timing was wrong. In fact, if you look at why most startup companies fail, it's timing. If you enter too soon, you burn up all your resources and you crash and burn and, yeah, and you've lost your opportunity. If you start too late, you've got all the big guys and they're competing and it's too tough and you can't make it. You want to get it just at that point where it's beginning to take off. You know, you're going to make mistakes when you're forming a new company, when you're doing anything that's brand new. And if you're going on a big upslope, you can recover. But if you're not on an upslope, you're in trouble. There have been quite keen discussions here on the role of the state in innovation and entrepreneurship, haven't there? What do you make of that? If you think again about innovation as being a learning science. Anything that helps you learn faster is better. So if the government puts uncertainty into the system, if they put regulations in that are barriers to innovation, if they don't create the kind of intellectual property um, environment, it's a barrier. So government actually sets the rules. And the rules ought to be, how do we make it easy for people to operate, learn, and form their ventures? An entrepreneur is someone who's looking at a very noisy signal, like, uh, you know, an old AM radio on the top of a mountain someplace. <laughs> and every once in a while, a little signal comes through. They have to find that signal. And the government sets the background noise for your ability to do that. So you, governments can kill it, or they can make it easier. Singapore works, for example, to make it easier. Well, Singapore is an interesting place. You consult now to Singapore. Entrepreneurship was regarded with enormous suspicion in Singapore for many, many years because bright people went into the civil service there. And your parents didn't want you to do anything adventurous like being an entrepreneur. There simply wasn't that cult of entrepreneurship, was there? I'm not quite familiar with that early part of Singapore. I can imagine it. But I would tell you it's completely different now. The, the government is encouraging entrepreneurship in every way imaginable. And they're beginning to create a cadre of young people who are excited about the opportunities and stepping up to them. When I once interviewed Lee Kuan Yew, then senior minister of Singapore, the founder of the nation, of course, he had made a recent speech about failure. He wanted Singapore to embrace the idea of failure and risk, of course. And until then, they had been a very risk-averse state. The nanny state held their hand every inch of the way. This was going to change, he said. And when they want change in Singapore, the government normally gets its way. Well, they do. But I would say people use those words, but I think those are the wrong words. It's not about failure. It's about learning fast. If you tell particularly a Chinese culture, we want you to fail fast, that is terrifying. 
That's not going to motivate people. But if you tell them the goal is to learn fast, they go, I can do that. I've had that experience many, many times. Say, we can do that. We can do that as well as anybody in the world. And Singapore, in my view, is the only learning country in the world. They literally are dedicated to getting better through continuous learning. I wish we did more of that in here as I'm sitting in Europe. And I certainly wish we did more of that in the United States. It's about learning and adapting to the world we're in. This forum has been all about entrepreneurship. That was its theme. Bring entrepreneurship into innovation, please. It has various parts. Entrepreneurs are people who go out and actually put things together, raise the resources to create real products in the marketplace. But we also talked about several other things, which is value creation. That's the process of where you're actually doing the research and doing all the learning that's required. There aren't that many entrepreneurs in society. I mean, there are lots in absolute numbers, but as a percentage, it's still pretty small. But the number of people who can create new things is almost unlimited. And we certainly saw that in all of our exchanges at SRI or our partners around the world. There are just an enormous number of people who can be so much more productive than they are if you give them these innovative value creation skills. They can amaze themselves, literally a small team, by working in the right way can change the world. At SRI, you did a lot of cross-collaboration, didn't you? Different people with very different disciplines working very closely together. All those rooms were about that, weren't they? Dedicated to particular projects, and that was about mixing up ideas, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, so all the big opportunities in the world today, whether it's in biotech, medical devices, personalized medicine, next generation of energy technologies... Every one of them basically requires multiple disciplines today. And by the way, that's the hard thing for universities and most companies today. They're not good at putting those multidisciplinary teams together, and they don't really encourage the kind of intense collaboration that's required to take advantage of it. But if you can't put those big multidisciplinary teams together, you cannot be successful. When we did Siri on the iPhone, it ended up, when the company was bought by Steve Jobs, it ended up on... The speech on recognition service, the speech talking to yes. you service. There were, there were probably 10 different technologies in there, and we assembled um, a team of over a dozen partners from around the world. They were literally the who's who of people in machine learning and artificial intelligence and natural language and all these different technologies. That's what allowed us to solve that problem before anybody else in the world. And if you can't do that today, you've got a problem. Well, you have a problem. In Britain, for example, the government discovered that uh, when it wanted to encourage uh, investment in innovation, that the research councils were organized in vertical silos. So there was chemistry, there was physics, there was biology. If you wanted to give money to cross-collaborative ventures or grants or whatever it was, then you were up against the whole structure of the system, the jealousy of the professions in trying to get them to work together. Very, very difficult to do. You had to change the, the very structure of the research organizations and the funding organizations themselves. Well, it's absolutely true. And here, if you're in England, it goes back to Isaac Newton. and It has a really strong tradition in the academic circles of working in those particular disciplines. I would tell you that's breaking down, though. It's breaking down in America. The new dean of engineering at Stanford is a physicist. She's a physicist. They didn't put a particular discipline of engineering in charge of the entire department. They put someone who can do that cross-disciplinary research. Why has computing and the 
the huge amount of effort that's gone into innovation in Silicon Valley, why has all that effort over the last 30, 40 years not resulted in a new surge in productivity? doesn't show up in the figures. What's wrong? Well, some things are just hard. Um, But obviously what we're looking at is some things that are both amazing and also a little bit scary. Obviously, we're going to have autonomous vehicles in the next 10, 15, 20 years. The amazing part about that is most people won't have to own a car. They'll just order up an autonomous vehicle. It'll come pick you up. It's going to reduce the amount of storage space, parking space for cars. So cities are going to become more open, more transparent. There'll be less pollution. It's just an amazing list of things that will happen. The problem with that one is, of course, it does increase productivity profoundly, but it also eliminates Probably in the United States, about 15 million jobs. And they're good middle-class jobs. Drivers, yeah. But the whole infrastructure, though, all the support services, the shops, everything that goes along with that, it's not just the drivers. And they are kind of traditionally good middle-class jobs. And our fear is, how do we innovate fast enough and create whole new industries to create the kind of jobs to take care of society? So in this conference, a big theme was the social responsibility side of what we're doing and how do we make sure we don't leave people behind? And clearly, you can see from around the world, we're not doing a good enough job. You have some other feelings about the conference. What did you learn? What did you not learn? Well, I think we're at a point of transition. There are a lot of talks here about, you know, you should be more open, you should be more transparent, you should be more collaborative, which are all good things to say because that's part of what we need to do. I think we need to move now more to the how. Not just the what, but the how. How do you do that? How do you build organizations that have that? How do you make them sustainable? It's all the how part. And every discipline goes through this. There's kind of a brainstorming, you know, conceptualization of the principles. But then if it can't be instantiated, it's not real. But the size, shape, and applicability of uh, business was kind of established in the mass production era, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Is it now fighting the need for new, innovative, entrepreneurial businesses? Is that now a 100-year-old structure that runs a mass manufacturing company very well indeed? Is that now a hindrance? Yes. I mean, that's a legacy thing. It doesn't go away, by the way. Um, We still have to do that, and there's whole industries that must master those kinds of skills. But increasingly, the innovative side of our economy is increasingly important. So if you don't have the skills to be able to do that, you're not going to be around very long. Many thanks to Kurt Carlson, who now runs a uh, consultancy called... The Practice of Innovation. Can I say one more thing? Oh, yeah, please do. I think a lot of people talk about doom and gloom and what are we going to do. I'm encouraged by at least a few observations. The first is, I've never seen a better time for innovation in my career. Every field, you pick a field, nanotechnology, personalized health, energy they're still completely wide open for major innovations. I think society's challenge is how do we get good enough at innovation to develop them fast enough so we can create the jobs, the prosperity, and the resources we need to take care of our social responsibilities. That's our challenge. Many thanks to Kurt Carlson, who now runs a consultancy called The Practice of Innovation, was at SRI in Silicon Valley, California, for a very long time. I'm Peter Day. This is the Drucker Forum Report. More podcasts coming up soon.